Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates the unsolved death of federal prosecutor Jonathan Luna in 2003. It is a true story. But the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. Ravenel was the only one that didn't take the polygraph test. He was the only one that didn't get interviewed by the FBI. The FBI was embarrassed beyond description. That's something that can never happen, should never happen. Jonathan Luna's name was involved in that. It's like, really? A prosecutor took the money? I don't think so. And after that, I think Jonathan was not the most favorite person on the FBI relationship list. This is episode six of season three, The Defense Lawyer. I'm your host, David Payne. It's been 10 years since a federal prosecutor was found dead in rural Lancaster County. We will find out who did this. Was he trying to stage some sort of attack and went too far? I'm a crook, you a crook, he a crook, everybody a crook in prison. On September 25th, 2019, 17 years after the Naco Brown bank robbery case he tried against Jonathan Luna, Defense attorney Ken Ravenel awoke to news he had been indicted. It was a potentially shocking capstone to a storied legal career in Baltimore. And of course, WBAL investigative reporter Jane Miller would be there on the courthouse steps to cover the drama. Attorney Ken Ravenel has handled some of the most high-profile cases in the Baltimore area. Now he finds himself in the limelight again, but for the wrong reason. Ravenel's accused of helping his client, a drug dealer and others, in a criminal conspiracy evade law enforcement. Key allegations say Ravenel laundered money. The money laundering charge alone carries up to 20 years in prison, but the third charge, accusing Ravenel of being part of a drug conspiracy, carries a maximum sentence of life. In Greenbelt, I'm Jane Miller, WBAL-TV 11 News. When Ken Ravenel was indicted on conspiracy and money laundering charges last year, my mind raced. Sure, these were only allegations, and yes, it was Baltimore. But the indictment was specific enough to raise eyebrows. And I wanted to know what Jane Miller could tell us about it. Well, the investigation in the case of Ken Ravenel had been going on for years. First time he was raided was, I think, 2014. And then in the summer of 2019, his office was again raided. But essentially, he's charged with laundering money. And essentially using his law firm as a front for laundering money. Right. Correct. And funneling drug proceeds to various businesses. This was a major league drug trafficking case. This wasn't small, local. This was nationwide. And so these questions swirled around him for quite a bit of time about his relationship with his clients and the money from his clients. And so the primary client involved in the cases against Ken now is a drug trafficker, big drug trafficker, that Ken represented. 
Of course, of interest to this story was not the drug trafficker that Ken represented. It was the bank robber that Jonathan Luna prosecuted and Ken defended. And Nako Brown was not happy with his representation either. I did file a complaint with the Bar Association on him. When? So after my direct appeal, I did that. Between 2004 and 2006, okay. I did that. And mentioned that I, I believe that he had something to do with everything that was going on surrounding my case. And so that didn't, that didn't go over well. And so that's when me and him had a big falling out. And uh, he actually yelled at me and hung up on me, and so I haven't talked to him since. And I was in Lewisburg. And here, I should probably back up again to give some context on where we're heading next. In all the prior reporting about Nako Brown's trial, the not-so-thinly-veiled suggestion was that Jonathan Luna had stolen the evidence and that he had committed suicide because he was about to be outed as a thief. You see, Jonathan was supposed to take a polygraph test about the missing money just two days after he went missing. And investigators theorized he must have thought he was going to fail. And so when Jody and I first reached out to Nako Brown, who was still serving time for his convictions, I wanted to know if he had witnessed anything to support or rebut this unsupported suspicion. Little did I know that we would be breaking the news to him that his former attorney had been indicted, a fact that could bolster an alternative theory of what happened. I have to apologize because when you originally told me about Revenel, I was so uh, thrown back and surprised that I really was just celebrating. And I really didn't get to ask any questions in prayer because I was just thanking God for that. And so I got to do that last night, and I'm going to give you some things that I think you're going to appreciate. Did Ravenel do anything in the course of the trial that made you suspicious that he was involved? Yes. He literally brought, I'm not exaggerating, he literally brought another briefcase. I'm just, I'm very observant. I see things and maybe it's the Holy Spirit telling me to look at certain things. Well, at the end of the trial, he brought this briefcase that he never bought before. And I, I realized that the briefcase is a little bigger than his normal compact briefcase, you know? And so, of course, hindsight, I'm looking back and saying, oh my goodness, that's, that was probably the day that he took the money or the money was taken. What else was there that made you believe that he wasn't on the up and up? Also, I didn't give him his last payment. That was another thing. He was complaining about money. He was complaining about I didn't give him his, his last payment. So that was another thing. Are we going to get cut off here, Nako? Are you going to be able to call back or are we going to have to try again? Oh, shit. I think we will. And so it would go. For the next three months, as we all waited through the 2020 pandemic, Nico Brown would take the precious 10 minutes of phone time he was allotted to call me. Hey, how's it going? How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, I have a call at 10, but... And to be honest, I felt a little guilty about it. Nico? Yes? I don't want to take up all your time because I don't want to take up your minutes of, that you need to contact your wife. So do you want to try to do every other day or every couple And so, sometimes we would email, too. And that was how Nako Brown not only blew us away with the money was stolen in the large briefcase theory, but also with his theory about how that alleged theft was related to Jonathan's death. 
Are you there? Yeah. So let me read you what he said in uh, the message two days ago, three days ago. Yeah. Now, I'm going to give you something you need to pray about and do your necessary research. As you know, there is one rule of thumb when it comes to solving a crime, motive and opportunity. When the money evidence was stolen, Luna became number one suspect. Once he was deceased, the investigation turned to his homicide. Who would want him dead? Whoever stole the money with him? I'm well to bet if I was a betting man, if someone put it out there that the persons who stole the money with Luna want him quick and not take the scheduled polygraph test had motive and opportunity. You may have a lot of people saying we did steal the money, but did not kill anyone. Now you are close to who committed the homicide. Once again, I think someone thought that he was the weakest link. I do. And as delicate as I want to be with it, and a very sensitive issue, and very diplomatic, and, and I want to respect him, respect his family. But the reality is, I think someone thought he was the, the weakest link. And now we're revving now with this, and in the situation with, that he's in, the capability, the motive, and opportunity it was there, you know? As Nako recounted his story, rattling around my brain were several key facts. First, Ken Ravenel may have been the last person to speak with Jonathan, and someone who knew he was there that night likely followed him out of that courthouse garage. Second, Ravenel was in a heated argument with Jonathan outside of Ned Richardson's office the night he died. And third, a courthouse colleague, Paul Hazelhurst, told us about Ravenel's apparent sensitivity to his joshing when Jonathan did not show up at court the following morning. That I do recall the day that Jonathan didn't show up for court and it, it had a sort of you know, joking conversation with one of the defense attorneys. And, you know, what'd you do with Jonathan? You know, why, why isn't he here? And he's like, oh, no, no, don't joke about that. Because I think, you know, that was their the initial inclination of the U.S. Attorney's Office was somebody from this case had something to do with Jonathan not showing up. And I have to admit, Nako's theory got my mind racing as I talked it all through with Jody. So Nako's theory obviously is that somehow Luna and Ravenel decided to take the money. And then further, that had to do with Luna getting killed on the night of this crazy drive. Yeah. But it holds together just from a logic standpoint. If they were both in on it together and Luna was getting cold feet, Maybe even Luna was realizing that he was going to get squeezed for the rest of his life by this guy, right? Okay. This guy essentially has blackmail material over him. If that's what happened, there were definitely conversations on the side. Yeah. That makes sense, actually, more than he went and stabbed himself 36 times. Well, come on. No one with a fucking pen knife? Come on. Yeah. Ain't nobody buying that bullshit. Whether anyone was buying that bullshit or the theory that Nako was now selling was tough to say. It had a certain logical appeal, but was completely inconsistent with what I had learned about Jonathan. And as I started a lengthy inquiry into Nako's claims, my initial skepticism was mirrored in predictable form by Nako himself, 
who wanted to understand why we were interested in him. I do have a question for you. So your objective in this was initially to unravel the mystery of Luna? Yes. And you're just talking about the money or you're talking about his death or what? The death is what we started looking at and then I got completely distracted by your story because of the nature of it and how, I mean, it was just, your story is fascinating. And there was a reason for that distraction. The way I research a case is to review every available document in a court's filing system. And NACO's case file was thick. Thousands of pages, chronicling not only the bank robbery trial in 2002, but all his post-conviction relief efforts as well. Efforts that included allegations that he had been prejudiced by the money going missing and that he deserved a new trial. And to be honest, when I first read through it, as a former prosecutor, I wasn't convinced he was entitled to a do-over. Just from afar, and I was thinking about it, you know, it's just like, okay, some evidence went missing. And from that standpoint, okay, well, that doesn't really go to guilt or innocence, right? Right, right. But when you see the aftermath of the whole concept, it was just really... Like when it was time to send the money in, the jury was asking for the money. And the judge went out his way to say, no, we don't, we don't do that. We don't send the money in. Why not? It was evidence. Why you don't send the yeah. money in unless the money is gone? That didn't surprise me, Nako, because a lot of times you won't send firearms into evidence. I could see them not sending the money into evidence. So that wouldn't alarm me as somebody looking at the case after the fact. But what you just said about... But the more Nako and I talked about it, the more my mind opened to the possibility that maybe he did deserve a new trial because of the missing money. But that, that to me, I'd love to hear it from your perspective, how you think it impacted your case. Well, first of all, if you have a paid attorney who is focusing more on stealing the evidence than representing his client, then clearly it affects me there. So with that said, once his turn up missing, he did not conduct himself like a defense lawyer. A defense lawyer would have easily said, hey, you know, we need to stop this whole proceeding, put this in advance until the FBI finished their investigation. This is like a, a present given to a defense lawyer. You know, he didn't take that approach. It's interesting because what you just said now had more impact on me than what was coming through the writing which is that he had essentially an incentive to deep six any further conversation about that case and try to get it over with as soon as possible. In effect, that's an ineffective assistance of counsel type of argument. Right. Because he was worried about himself getting caught and not proceeding. Now, I think that's probably some of the challenge with some of the pleadings. But while I was becoming more open to NACO's legal arguments about deserving a new trial, I remained guarded and prepared for the expected give and get that might accompany NACO agreeing to tell us what he knew about who took the money and how it might relate to Jonathan's death. Has he asked for your legal advice and help at all? A little bit, yeah, not directly. He asked me to contact the clerk to see if they were gonna to respond to one of his pending motions, see if he could jog it loose. 
What's the deal with his attorney now? Is it a court-appointed attorney? He said he just got a new one. He was not happy with his last public defender. He went out and went around him and contacted the AUSA and he contacted the judge. I'm sure that didn't endear him to his attorney. No, I'm sure it did not. That usually doesn't go over well. No. But even though I didn't think his legal strategies were serving him well, reading through year after year of pro se letters and petitions for relief, something changed in my assessment of his situation. For starters, despite the fact that I didn't think the stolen evidence impacted the proper adjudication of guilt, I came to sympathize with his Jobsian efforts to simply get someone to listen to him. I knew that the entire process was tainted. All the evidence was tainted. And it would appear that my defense had something to do with it because he didn't respond like a defense lawyer. But I was thinking about some of the things that we talked about last time. And one of the things that stood out in my appeal process is Judge Motts took Judge Davis' place. So Judge Motts became my judge. Everything that I put in, he denied. Everything. So when I got the FBI discovery and discovered that he too was interviewed and him and Judge David had a relationship, I was kind of shocked with that. And even up to today, it's a sense of my appeals is not going to go but so far because they don't want to bring it up, you know? It's like mm-hmm. a very touchy subject, very sensitive subject with Luna being deceased and and the question mark over that. The FBI saying one thing and then the U.S. Attorney Office saying another. So I believe that my case was like right in the middle of an unresolved issue, you know? And Nako is probably right to be concerned, but maybe not for the reasons he thinks. The reality is that judges and lawyers in every court system will always give themselves the benefit of the doubt. And you cannot reasonably expect the same for members of the opposing team. So it is not really surprising that claims by a convicted bank robber that a star lawyer took the money did not land in that community, even if members of the press had an inkling. Yeah, I mean, Ken is a really interesting question. I guess I was never a reporter who loved off the record or on background, but I will say, you know, he was a hustler, right? Like, he was on every case. He was everywhere. And he was funny. He was a little flashy. And he was smart. He was quick. I really liked Ken. It's funny. He was a source in kind of the same way Jonathan was. Like, he had a good case. He wanted to make sure you knew about it. But I guess I would say it's not an enormous surprise to hear that he's involved in a case on the other side now. But if Ken was on your team, the legal profession team, then like any tribe, you close ranks. And you have to look no further than at Ravenel's 2019 indictment to see how cautious the bar is in rendering judgment on one of its own. Judge Andre Davis. I'll start by just disclosing that Ken came to me some time ago to ask whether I would testify as a character witness if and when the proceedings get to that point. And my answer to him was, you give me a subpoena, 
I will show up and I will testify to my knowledge of your reputation and your good character. And I stand by that. And it wasn't just the judge who was approached for and agreed to give a good character affidavit for Ravenel. It was members of the defense bar as well. And Ravenel contacted me and a number of other attorneys that did federal work and asked that I would do an affidavit for him about what I knew about him. And essentially, you know, the affidavit was, you know, I've known him, his reputation. He, you know, he has a reputation of being a very good criminal defense attorney. I know nothing about him ever being... And as these things go, it is natural to want to believe the best of the people you know. Attorney Paul Hazelhurst's view about Ravenel pretty much captured the sentiment. You know, I can't comment on what the government's accusing of him now. I find it hard to believe he's a smart, smart guy, too. And I think he knows where the traps would be and he would not get himself into that kind of trouble. So I have a hard time believing there's any substance there. But again, I, have, I admire Kenny and I think, you know, in terms of his professional skills, he's a good attorney. Of course, this being Baltimore, the plot of what may have been going on behind the scenes is much thicker than just lawyers reflexively standing up for one another. I should also tell you that, do you know the name Josh Treen? Yeah, how do I know that name? So Josh is a very, very distinguished lawyer in the Maryland Bar, has been for going on 50 years, probably not quite 50. He represented Ken during the prolonged investigation. And it has come to pass that the U.S. Attorney's Office has targeted Josh and the FBI executed a search warrant at Josh Treem's law firm. Wow. Seizing, yes, wow. Seizing records related to Josh's representation of Ken Ravenel. So it's been a real shit show. It's, it's, it's a real mess. The matter went up to the Fourth Circuit. And the fact that Josh Treem, the lawyer for Nako Brown's lawyer, has now in 2021 been added to a superseding conspiracy indictment with his client, Ken Ravenel, makes it even messier for our purposes. Because the guy who was originally overseeing the Ravenel case for the government, the guy who was negotiating a potential plea of Ravenel with his now indicted counsel and co-defendant, Josh Treem, was James Warwick, the same AUSA, who approved dropping the alleged related murder charge in the Stash House Records case the night Jonathan died. You know, the original search warrant of Ken's former law firm was now more than five years ago. So this investigation has just dragged on beyond anything anybody around here has ever seen. I mean, I understand, of course, for an investigation like this, you got to get approvals at the highest level of the Justice Department, of course. But a four or five or six year investigation of a criminal defense lawyer based on allegations of his former client, we've never seen anything like this around here. And while the judge can't explain the actions of the Justice Department that he once served in as well, as a simple testament to the strength of the legal brotherhood, he's still willing to give his brethren the benefit of the doubt. And so just last week, 
I agreed to add my name to a letter which a bunch of us who are former assistant U.S. attorneys and practitioners around Baltimore who know Josh to attest to Josh's good character. You just aren't going to find a criminal defense practitioner anywhere in Maryland, in Baltimore, more highly regarded than Josh Treen. I mean, we were talking about Jonathan Luna just now, but the idea that Josh Treen, at this stage in his career, would cross some line in the representation of a lawyer, it's just unthinkable. So is it really any wonder then that the lawyers of the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office might not take up the bank robber's claims that a lawyer or two crossed a line in his case. But Baltimore attorneys are not the only troops that stick together when challenged. For as I would learn, NACO was building his own army in prison as well. Next time on Somebody Somewhere, he said, man, I be praying in the spirit and I see things. So, you know, we like, yeah, all right, whatever. And if you could just see how impactful that NACO was, I seen supernatural healing take place for the men there. You're always skeptical about, you know, how truthful is they being? Is he just trying to get out? Everybody had their eye on him to see, hey, is this really a, a man of God? Now, what you need to ask NACO, how many don't call the coronavirus where he at? Here goes the devil Telling me to lie again But since I'm around me Says it's alright to pretend That you can get more than you give Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. Artwork provided by Evan McGlynn and Kendall Payne. If you have any information regarding the Jonathan Luna case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Just want you to love Even though I still love money I need more money